Do you have an interest in the legacies that historical and not so historical figures leave behind? Are you curious about how to ensure family heirlooms and life lessons are passed on from generation to generation? Are you interested in developing your end of life plan to alleviate family discord and encourage generational wealth? Well, I invite you to listen to Heirloom and Legacy, a podcast that explores ancestry, heirlooms, legacy, mortality, and more. I am Angeline C. Fraser Giles, your host, and I look forward to sharing these discussions with you. Thank you so much for joining Heirloom and Legacy podcast. This episode features Aisha Taimba, a clinical social worker and therapist. Aisha discusses her trajectory from a K through 12 teacher to a therapist. We focus on the heirlooms and legacies passed on from generation to generation in the form of mental and physical health. Aisha has an introspective analysis of Black pathology and how societal norms force us into systems that don't always allow us to thrive. We also discuss DNA imprints, epigenetics, and how parents pass their mental and physical triumphs and challenges onto their children. Aisha also has a love and understanding of kids and young people that may be unmatched by anyone other than my sister, who was previously a nanny and retired from the New York City Department of Education's Living for the Young Family Program, also known as LIFE. The program allows young parents to stay in school while their child is in a sponsored daycare. This same sister now cares for a child who needs extra attention. As Aisha discussed young kids' energy, I remember my final class in the sixth grade where I was a teacher's assistant at a local school. I would walk into the class and it looked like a scene from the gremlins with kids hanging from the rafters. Okay, I exaggerate a bit, but I thought these kids are out of control. Unfortunately, that experience informed my decision not to become a teacher. Aisha forced me to look at how I, in the sixth grade, pathologized the kids in that class. She has forced me to put things in perspective and look internally. I hope you enjoy our discussion. Good afternoon and welcome to Heirloom and Legacy, third season. Thank you so much for joining us today. I am so pleased to have Ms. Aisha Taimba with me today. And Aisha is a licensed professional counselor in the DC metropolitan area. She obtained her master's of arts in clinical mental health counseling from Trinity Washington University and a bachelor of arts in early childhood education from the University of the District of Columbia. Ms. Taimba has worked for 12 years in the mental health field and over 20 years in the often eerily parallel field of education. You can't wait for her to talk a little bit about that. She is the owner and primary clinician for her practice, Healing Matters, whose main mission is to depathologize the specific experience of living while Black in America. 
Talking and listening are her superpowers, and her expertise has been sought after on panels as a facilitator, keynote speaker, and master of ceremonies on topics from pop culture to healing and wellness. Welcome, Aisha. Thank you. Thank you so very much. So I want to talk a little bit about your trajectory, just how you got to where you are today, because uh, childhood education, early education, and uh, now being a, a clinical, you know, psychologist. I mean, what is, how did you get here? So the long way, <laughs> <laughs> I started off, I would say that the first time that I was responsible for the care of a child, I was three years old. And that was my godbrother. From there, my own little sister was born in the house when I was four years and 11 months old. And I got to see the magic, essentially, of all these women in my home helping my mother usher this new life into the world. And I decided that that was what I wanted to do. Only to discover later on when I was 15, that you also had to be a gynecologist or to study gynecology in order to be an obstetrician. And I wasn't interested in that. But before I even got to finding out what that was all about, around the age of 12, I had friends that started to come to me to ask me for advice, which if you think about what you knew at 12 years old, nothing about not, that makes any sense. Yeah. Yeah. Not much. <laughs> Not much at all, right? But here here I was with multiple friends who were seeking counsel from me and somewhere in there, the idea that I would become a child psychologist sort of started to compete with the idea of being an obstetrician. But it was when I went to the gynecologist myself and started asking questions about obstetrics and understanding how those two went together that I decided this wasn't for me. Let me go on ahead and stick with the child psychology route. Well, I had an uncle who let me know that I would basically be broken destitute with that choice because <laughs> you can't make any money as a psychologist and essentially told me that I was crazy for all the things that I wanted to do uh, truthfully because I also wanted to be a DJ. I wanted to be a model. There was a lot of things that I was interested in and he shot them all down and told me that I was crazy. You know, DJs make a lot of money. Listen, I don't <laughs> I don't know that this man was connected enough to his own blackness to understand a good party. Truthfully. Right. Truthfully. My mother would be really upset, maybe, <laughs> about me saying that about her brother. But I don't know that, that that's where we were at the time. If you think about being 12 years old, what is that? Nine, 1980, <clears throat> like six, mm -hmm. something like that. Mm -hmm. I don't know outside of Spinderella from Salt and Pepper that there were any female DJs to, to even model myself after. But the fact that she existed was so enticing to me and letting me know that there were things that were possible that I had never considered. And I'm a child of hip hop. And mm -hmm. so the idea of being able to rock a party, of yeah. course I wanted to do that, <laughs> right? That was that was amazing. But he canceled all of that. He let me know that I was dreaming to either too big or too small, depending on the perspective that you have and how you look at it. And, you know, he let me know I needed money to survive and none of this was going to pay me. So I needed to choose something else. 
Interestingly enough, though, the direction that I went in after beginning to study psychology and the discovery that most of the field is rooted in whiteness and the way that it's taught. And I could not identify myself anywhere in there. So I was no longer interested in the field at that time. And my godmother actually steered me towards education. She said, you would be a perfect teacher. And Mm -hmm. I had never considered that. And probably much to my uncle's chagrin, uh, cause there was no money to be made in teaching either. Here I right. am making more broke choices, but <laughs> this, this was what I started to study and really, really fell in love. It was a easy kind of marriage of all the things that reside in me that were sort of natural in terms of the childcare piece, the nurturance, the, the listening, all of that. And then I had really great teachers myself who were the model for me for what education was supposed to be, while also recognizing that I didn't have that once I entered public school. So I started school in the African center school system, well, African center schools. I don't, I don't even think it's considered to be a school system, but I started in African center schools. And then when I entered public school, I, I recognized that there was a difference in the ways that we were taught. Mm-hmm. And so the idea of becoming a teacher was like, yeah, let me bring that to the fore. Let me, let me engage black children with what my teachers gave to me. Right. So that was the move then. Then when I got into education, I realized the system of education was not interested in me bringing that to the fore, that they were not interested. You in cannot having, bring your full self. Oh, you cannot. And you can, you cannot really have good intentions for black children either. You Mm. can want to see them matriculate through school, but you really can't have good intentions for having Black children believe in themselves, for being as self-actualized as you can be as a child, right? To be respected and listened to, to be valued in in any way. You You can't move like that in the public school system or the public charter school system for that matter. And so the space got to be very abusive and I wound up leaving multiple times. Something in me just is so super connected to being an educator, but I could not do what I came to do. And the other thing that I observed was my classrooms were a microcosm for what was happening in communities and families. And the ills of the families, the ills of the community showed up there. So I'm Mm -hmm. not just teaching a child. I am working with who's in their home, whether I ever saw them or not. I'm working with the block that they lived on, whether I ever traveled to that block or not. And that was a lot of work. That was a lot of expectation. That was a lot of hardship, a lot of frustration and something that I would have continued to do if the background of education, the systemic aspects, the administrative aspects were not also abusing me at the same time, which meant that I didn't have the energy to continue to fight against all these other things. So my decision was, if I can't rescue these children, and I'm using that word sort of loosely, I did not see myself as a rescuer per se. Mm -hmm. But if I can't rescue these children, then something has to happen in their families made up of adults and the adults who are in their communities 
so that those people could heal themselves and then not pass on their issues to their children and then become the the problem or the challenge of whoever is at the the front of the classroom. So let me just stop you there really mm-hmm. quickly because one of the one of the things uh, that we like to talk about here on heirloom and legacy is you know, what is the heirloom that someone is leaving or that you will be leaving? What is the legacy that you will you will be leaving in terms of of end of life primarily, end of life care, right? And that's that's primarily what the what my discussions are and what my passion project is, is to make sure that people are not leaving a mess when they when they leave this <laughs> earth. But you are really looking at not leaving heirlooms or legacy that are detrimental to who's coming next and looking at it in a more holistic way of, okay, you have a child in a classroom who you don't know what they had to do to get to that classroom, right? Mm -hmm. There's all of these things with the neighborhood that they're in, that they had to, you know, fight whoever to get to this classroom, the whatever's going on in the home, to get to that classroom. And then you're dealing with all of those things, right? All of the trauma and the drama and everything that's going on in the house. So talk a little bit about, about that, that piece of it. When you say you were, you know, you had to deal with all of the things and try to rescue the kids. What does that mean? Ah, that's, that's so deep. (laughs) so it's so deep so I'm gonna do my English teacher bit for just a second because I'm always about defining words so an heirloom is typically a valuable object that has belonged to a family for several generations the word valuable is the part that's debatable here based on what we're talking about Um, valuable typically is something that we respond to meaning good A legacy is the long-lasting impact of particular events, actions, et cetera, that took place in the past or of a person's life. And so the legacy typically belongs to the person. But in this particular culture right now, we look at legacy uh, uh, as something that you hand hand on as well. But if you're handing it on, then that then becomes the heirloom. The, the legacy itself now is the, the heirloom. Mm-hmm. Um, also meaning that the word object is um, questionable here as well. So we're looking at it more through a figurative lens than a, than a literal lens. So if I think about what my students were coming to school with, that they inherited, if you will, from the adults in their lives. I had students who were the children of parents with addictions. Um, I had students with parents who were managing multiple illnesses that prevented them from being able to work to a capacity that provided for for those very children in my classroom. I had students who were the children of parents with mental health diagnosis, well, mental illness diagnoses, themselves that behaved in a way that endangered them 
at times or altered the way that they themselves behaved as well based in the nurture and nature aspect. Mm -hmm. So you live in a home, you witness a thing, it eventually also becomes your nature, right? It's the way that you are nurtured and then becomes your nature. I had students who were essentially the responsible adult, if you will, in the household because whatever it was that their parents had going on didn't allow them to participate in the raising of children in the household. I had students who were living in shelters, who had been in hundreds of foster care placements, um, students who were homeless, students who did not have access to washer and dryer based on whatever was happening in their house and and the, the lack of access to resources. And so when you think about not just their experience as children, but who they come from, what those parents, guardians, et cetera, are having to deal with from their own struggle and lack, from recognizing what they are unable to do for the people who come from them, their progeny, um, from the impact of hardship, generational often, right? Because if you, for a lot of them, you know, grandparents were pulled in, you meet the grandparents, you're like, oh, okay. <laughs> I see the trajectory here. I see how right. all of this is is being handed down, essentially the heirloom of this particular kind of struggle, right? Growing up in a multi, multiple generations, growing up in the same neighborhood, right? Where blight has continued to get worse and worse. Violence shows up inside and outside of the home. And this is not everybody, right? I'm not, I'm not trying to paint the stereotypical sort of picture about what Black life is. I actually strongly reject it. At the same time, I recognize that for the students that I worked with, that was a great many of their story. Mm-hmm. And so all of those issues and concerns show up in the classroom. Children who need special kind of attention. And I don't mean special needs with IEPs. I'm talking about now you look into your teacher to be extended family, an auntie, a mama, a big cousin, a big sister, right? Based on how you trust them. We're talking about students who need somebody to provide a certain kind of discipline, to provide a certain kind of expectation to let them know that you are indeed valuable and necessary here and you are worth more than you have been told. And so now you're trying to essentially buff up or shine what has been given to them, not because other people didn't want them to be great, but had never been given an opportunity to be great to be themselves. Great themselves, right, mm-hmm. right. Goes so back to that that adage of hurt people hurt people. Exactly. And not having the tools yourself to handle the things that are going on in your life. Mm-hmm. How do you pass that on to your kids? You know, um, the the mental health challenges, the, you know, not having the the physical ability to to go out there and and find a job because you maybe you're disabled and you may or may mm-hmm. not be on disability getting, you know, assistance from from the government. So having 
all of those things go on, you know, that certain pathology that, you know, they like to label black people. They're, they're like this, they're like that. Well, what's the reasoning behind why is this kid coming to school and maybe their clothes aren't, aren't clean instead Mm -hmm. of trying to figure out, figure that out, which it sounds like you weren't necessarily always in, in a position to be able to help kids because you had the administration making sure, you know, okay, well, we got to make sure that they, they take these tests, you know, that they're ready to take this test. Mm-hmm. We've got to make sure that, that the basic curriculum is done. We can't be worried about all of the other things that are going on in the home because we've got to make sure that we cover what we're supposed to cover, our baseline. Yep. Right. So that having someone in the in the home that is not fully functioning, you're going to get passed down generation to generation. If you say a few generations in the same community, you know, what are you going to, what are you going to really get with this, with this child? So your idea of really helping that child and, and saying, okay, well, I, I want this child to feel valued, valued, you know, mm-hmm. as this individual person. Um, how do you then handle those types of situations. You're not in in a teaching situation any longer, but how, you know, an example of how you, you might've helped a child with someone, you know, who had a family member that was handling, dealing with mental illness or mental challenges. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of that speaks to the artistry of teaching. People think teaching is a science, but teaching is more of an art than it than a science. And it is in the arts and sciences when right. you study mm-hmm. it, mm-hmm. if you even study it. But most people don't even study teaching before they teach now. Mm. They come through a lot of side sideways and, and backdoor entries, right? It's cute. You're mm-hmm. you're feeling unhappy with your career. And so, you know, please I'm gonna become a teacher. Exactly, right? It sounds it sounds really cute, but it's not. Um <laughs> But you really have to tap into the creativity in teaching and to be able to see your children. This And this is where coming out of an african center school helped me as a teacher because it allowed me to see my students as individual people who come from individual people who all make up a collective, right? So coming from a community mindset, you can see each individual as macro and micro at the same time. You you recognize them as individuals, but also who they come from. But then you have to be really creative in what it is that you're observing. You have to be able to respect the circumstance. If you look down on them and pity them, you will not do your best work because you don't see them as worthwhile. Right. So you have to be able to respect the circumstance and understand where the circumstance was created to begin with so that you are not holding other people accountable specifically for their circumstance in terms of they chose it. Nobody chooses this, right? Mm -hmm. Now we all do have certain responsibility in what we do with what we have, but nobody chooses this. So that's the first thing. The second thing is keeping in mind never ever to allow the rhetoric of education to fill my brain space where children are considered to be numbers because schools are businesses. Mm. And so I have to make sure, 
or had to make sure that I saw those children as children, not as recipients of free lunch. They used to call them, I don't know if they still do, but they used to call them farm kids, free and reduced meals, right? Wow, I never heard that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you ha- you have so many things that you have to consciously be aware of in the way that you move. But also recognizing that as a trusted adult in the lives of children, there's not a lot that those children even really require of you outside of being safe. The content, that stuff that admin needs you to get through, that stuff that the school system needs to be able to say, you know, you did in terms of your testing scores and all, those kids don't care anything about that. And if you really honor them, recognizing that they need to know how to play the game to get out of here, but require something on the front end to even be able to make a connection with it, that in and of itself became the work. Forming Mm. connections, building rapport, which is what later also, you know, sort of pointed me in the direction of the work that I'm doing now, because it's the most important. It doesn't matter whether, you know, one education theorist or later in the work, one theorist in the field of psychology. It doesn't know. It doesn't matter if you know one theory or theorist, if you can connect with people and make them feel safe. So that first and foremost, creating an inviting an inviting classroom, being a person that they trusted and understood, understood them. They needed to understand that I understood them. And I didn't look down on them, that I knew that I could see the value that they were no longer able to see in themselves for the most part. And that included having engagements with certain other teachers in the building because those teachers didn't necessarily see them and respect them either. As, that's a whole other thing. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. That's a whole yeah. other thing. That's a whole nother the podcast. I it think, is. And conversation <laughs> about how uh, you're in a situation where where you're working hard to ensure that your classroom feels safe and they feel valued and others are thinking of these kids as throwaway kids, basically. Actually, I'm not even sure everybody thought of them as throwaway kids so much as you have to remember that teachers working in the system typically were educated in the system. Hmm. So it's not that they see themselves, see the the students as being throwaways. They see them often as extensions of themselves. See, look what I did. It's fine. This works. It's okay. You just need to work harder. You just need to apply yourself. You just need to be diligent. You just need to have 100% attendance. You just, you just, you just, in a way that does not put enough onus on them to look at what their own practices are. Because they too have been educated within this system that devalues them. They just cannot see it. Mm -hmm. This is why having the academic background that I have coming from the African-centered school system, I keep calling it a system, it's not a system, but coming from um, African-centered schools, or the the Center for Independent Black Institutions, CB schools is what it was. Coming out of CB schools, I had a different foundation where every day I was nurtured. I was told that I was a genius. I was pushed to to show up as such, right? There were clear-cut expectations of my behavior, of my academic performance, 
There were clear-cut expectations of how I would move in my community, how I would relate to to elders. All of those things were very clearly cut out for me. And so there was no confusion. And so my understanding going in was that these children need more structure. They need higher expectations. They need to know someone believes in them. And then my job was to wait until they understood it and started to believe in themselves. That was Mm -hmm. the work. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That was the work. So initially, you you know, you started working with with young people, mm-hmm. and now you've transitioned, and you're working more with adult population. So yes, why did you make that transition? So I realized <laughs> over the course of my time in the classroom that a lot of the issues in terms of being able to see parents one, you know, people just don't have time because in this society, you, you know, based on the socioeconomic status and all that, you might have two, three jobs. You don't have time to be taken off to go and meet up with your child's teacher. But there were also parents who didn't come into the the school environment because of their own experience as students. They themselves were failed and don't feel smart enough. Don't feel accomplished enough don't feel fill in the blank enough to go and stand before another teacher ever again in their lives. Mm. So their stuff is now impacting their children in several ways. This is just another one, right? And so looking at the combination of adult issues and concerns that showed up in the classroom, again, the, the classroom is the microcosm for the family and the community. Looking at this combination of concerns, I realized talking to children, helping children don't matter if they got to go back into those same households, because what is a child going to do? They don't have any agency. So the responsibility in the way that I interpreted it is that now I must focus on adults. We got to get these adults well. We got to help these adults heal. We got to get these adults in a space where they actually have the capacity to parent the children that they bring into the world. And then once they are well and they can raise children who are well, who will then raise children who are well, we start to pass on a different heirloom and people's legacies get to change. That's it's just an amazing concept that uh, I'm sure a lot of people don't necessarily think of heirloom and legacy. And the reason that I wanted you to be on is because I heard you talk about heirloom <laughs> and legacy mm-hmm. in a different way than that. It's more intrinsic, right? It's not a physical thing that you're passing on. You know, it, it is it is all the things that come along with you being the individual person that you are. You receiving the training that you did in the Afrocentric school system, schools, is different than the experiences that I was in because I was never in that in that mm-hmm. type of of environment. However, I also had Caribbean parents. Mm-hmm. And I had sisters who helped raise me who were trying to strive for something something else right so i had a i had a different trajectory 
But I was also in a situation where I had a lot of family that was very loving and very encouraging and all the things. And and we as a community, as a society need to recognize that not all folks come from that. Yeah. And so passing on passing on healthy legacy is just as important as passing on, you know, that house or that hundred thousand dollars or whatever. It's just as important because it allows people to then strive and grow and thrive. Yeah. For something other than, you know, living in in a community that they're not receiving the services that they need to to receive or working within that community to ensure that people are are able to get the services that they that they need to thrive in that community. So I I really appreciate that you you thinking of it in that way. Um so you have a line from your bio that I want to go to. Healing Matters mission is to depathologize the very specific experience of living while black in America. Talk hmm. a little bit about that. So my time as an educator really is foundational for so, for so many things. Okay. So when I started teaching second grade, second graders are seven years old. They're rambunctious. They're loud. They're moving at all times. And I would get observed and get written up for the fact that my seven-year-olds were loud and rambunctious and moving at all times. All of these children were Black. One who would be qualified as Brown and two who were white. Now, the white children behaved as the standard for behavior, quiet, respectful, um, studious, all the things. But I would pay attention to what would get said about my children. I had a, a, a little girl, a little, little pudgy butterball little girl who had flat feet and her feet were always hurting. She was, she definitely was giving grandma vibes in the way that she walked and all the things. She never had on shoes that really supported her body weight or any of these things. And so we would go on field trips and the child would be lagging behind. She, you know, out of breath and the whole nine. And the expectation was that I was going to make this child do what everybody else did. First of all, her body didn't do what everybody else's body did. Mm -hmm. She was not able to keep up in a lot of ways. And I remember one day, uh, one of the assistant principals came into my classroom and the child was doing her work, but she was doing her work on the floor, laying down where she was comfortable. And I got pulled up for the fact that I didn't have this child sitting in a chair. Uh, okay. For, is she is she on task? Is she doing what she's supposed to do? Right. Yes. But she's not doing it in the exact way that people want them to do it, right? So I'm looking at the fact that, one, these children are seven. Two, these children are Black. We're communal. We talk, right? We're loud. 
because we're excited about what we're talking about and who we're talking and to. who we're with, my best who friends we're, in this class, right? right? E- exactly. People come to I'm my family's gonna... Thanksgiving dinner and they're like, God, there's so many of you and you're loud. Yeah, we're excited to see each other. <laughs> and this is how the children behave. You're uh-huh. sitting at the table with your three closest girlfriends in the classroom. Why wouldn't you be loud? You're sitting at the table with the little boy who has the the same trucks or fidget spinners or whatever else it is that you're into and you're supposed to quietly sit next to them and not be curious or interested in them that's insane but those were the expectations right this is rambunctious and rowdy you can't possibly have good control of your classroom so I set out to do an experiment when you travel in the hallway you were supposed to walk on the red squares so you walk up on the red squares and you come down, you walk back down on the red squares and you're supposed to be very quiet. You're not supposed to make any noise in the hallway. Well, I don't know if you've ever traveled with 26, seven-year-olds, but there's, somebody's going to do something. Somebody's going to say something. <laughs> mm-hmm. So the expectation is ridiculous. So I started teaching poetry, one, because I love I'm I'm teaching language arts. Poetry comes up naturally. But I started teaching poetry with rhyming poetry that they could learn that had certain cadence changes. So as they're walking up and down the hallway, when you by the time you get to the end of the hallway where you're supposed to be, you're at the part that's the crescendo and you can make all this noise. You have now you've whispered and you've gotten it and you're saying the poem and you get to where you're supposed to be. Now the crescendo comes and everybody knows that you're here because room 304 has arrived. And they were able to travel that way. But if I just told them to do hips and lips like everybody else was doing in the in the hallway, they could right. not manage that. Mm-hmm. You put a, a finger to your lip as a seven-year-old, the next thing you're going to do, you're going to touch the person in front of you. That's just what you're going to do. But for whatever reasons, the expectations was that these children were not going to do what seven-year-olds do or what Black children do at all. So I paid attention to that. Then I started to uh, notice that it wasn't just the little kids because I have worked across the uh, K-12 spectrum, right? So now I'm in high school, teaching high schoolers. And the expectation is that the high schoolers, because they're older, they just simply know better. And they're going to do everything that is required of them. Well, I don't know if you've ever been an adult who's gone to a professional development and after a while you've been sitting there for a long time, you bored, you getting ready to start acting out like a child does. <laughs> because what does adulthood even mean? It doesn't guarantee that you suddenly do better with terrible conditions. That doesn't yeah. make any sense. But so again, I'm noticing, okay, these black children are loud and rowdy and excited. They came bursting through the door. They wanted to hug. They wanted to talk. They wanted to tell me what what new and exciting thing had happened in their lives. They wanted to show me their new shoes. They wanted to show me their new lashes, whatever the new hairstyle was. Somebody got a haircut. We reading a new book, whatever the thing is, they were excited about it. Don't you want kids to come to school excited? Mm-hmm. That's, how, that's how they learned in my classroom because they were excited to be in my room because they felt safe. They were challenged and they were excited. But other people didn't like that. They were still expecting that they were going to somehow be sterilized, that they weren't going to be exactly what they were. And so what I realized was we were pathologizing blackness or non, let me, let me, because it wasn't just black children. It was the rare 
the rare other brown child, right? But all of them were being pathologized. So you're pathologizing non-whiteness, essentially. Yeah. And so there's, I don't know who the mythical white child is who follows all instructions, is always seated quietly, um, only speaks when spoken to, et cetera, and works perfectly fine alone. I don't know who that white child is, but that was the standard that people are expecting in classrooms. And so if I'm looking at children, we're, path- we're, we're pathologizing children and determining that they are wrong for existing as they exist in the ways that they exist in their communities, that these ways that they show up do not belong in schools, are not suitable for success in schools. Again, telling them that who they are is invalid. So I did a little research in my master's program around the the academic disidentification of black and brown students in schools. And it's all related to how we expect to scrub them into, again, this mythical white child. Because when I tell you those white children don't really show up like the child either, they just don't get in trouble for it. Right. But we stay in trouble. Mm -hmm. Translate that to an adult. As black women... (laughs) We're pathologized Mm -hmm. for having emotions. We're pathologized for not showing up with enough emotions. We're pathologized for the way we dress, how we wear our hair, what our complexions are, depending on the environment. Added to black smiling. Exactly. Right. All of these stereotypes pathologize black people. We didn't even cover the ones related to black men. But all of these stereotypes have basically stated to us about us to everyone else about us that who we are how we function the way that we relate all wrong yeah it is it is the problem this is how we get over identification for childhood learning disabilities this is how we get over identification for just about any damn thing if you think about it it's it's very easy to push these things onto Black children, onto Black people. And if you grow up with this as a child, by the time you get to be an adult, what do you think of yourself? What do you think of the people that you come from? What do you think of your peers? How does that make you feel as you navigate the world? Do you even bother to navigate the world? Because for some of us, what is the point? Mm-hmm. So, but we totally disconnect, and we exactly. know we know young people like that who t- are totally disconnected and don't don't interact with the world mm-hmm. uh, in 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 a meaningful way in which there there's give and take and they're learning and they're mm-hmm. you know they are understanding certain things. They just shut down because it's not it's Check not out. even safe for you to try to process it. Because now, yeah. now all you're responsible for is your survival, mm-hmm. which is simply staying alive. There's, there's, there's no personal value placed on you in that respect. You're just staying alive. So for me, what I saw as the work was helping us to understand that there is nothing wrong with with our very existence. Not the same as not having 
the natural and expected responses to to nonsense, right? If you think from an environmental perspective, a systemic perspective, all of these things are nonsense. But the ways that we respond to the nonsense, if somebody punches you in your face and you respond angrily, you are pathologized for being angry. That don't make no sense. You just violated me. Yeah. But you're focusing on my response. That's insanity, right? So helping us to see that simply being us is not wrong. That simply being us does not make us sick. That the responses that we have to the stimuli that is constantly coming our way is in fact the available responses for that kind of stimuli. Which is why there's even a collection of things that people even put together as a disorder. I also do not work from the disorder perspective. So I let my clients know all the time, yes, I will assign you a diagnosis because that is what is expected of me. However, do understand that a disorder means you are wrong. Something is wrong with you for having responded to racism, sexism, ageism, oppression, uh, financial abuse, uh, spiritual abuse, physical abuse, that something is wrong with you for the way that you have responded to those things. Right. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah, I know uh, folks talk about, you know, what happened to you to make you do certain things? Well, again, we go back to the hurt people, hurt people, but but things happened in your life that got you to where you are now and how you respond to certain things. Mm -hmm. So how do you... How do you, in in the work that you're doing now, help people to purposefully seek better for their children in terms of heirloom and legacy? Like, how do you do that? So the first thing is I don't assume that we all have or wish to have children, but the way we all move impacts a child in some way. Some child you, sees us. I don't have any. Well, I have <laughs> I have bonus children. Mm-hmm. But birthed children, I knew I never wanted that. So mm-hmm. I saw that home ec movie and that was good. Oh, yes. The but, days of home ec. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I saw that. And I was ready to get out of home ec because <laughs> I don't cook. I don't sew. I did not want to have any babies after I got out of home ec. I was good. Shop, I was, I Lucky was okay. For you. Shop, I was Lucky okay. Lucky for you, like, we don't live in that world where you're expected yeah. to do all those things yes. uh, specifically. And Thankfully. that's not that's not to discount the the importance of those things. No, but the there are people who are definitely want to be mothers. Do. Right, 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 mm-hmm. right. <laughs> And even a lot of those women don't cook, don't sew. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Those are not things that everybody does. Those are not things that everybody has been taught to do. Right. Right. So if we're talking about an heirloom, something you can pass on, somebody in your household teaching you to do these things, now you at least, whether you want to do it or not, you at least know how to do it. You can Mm -hmm. make the choice about whether you're interested in it, right? But so because each of us impacts a child, at least one, in some way over the course of our lives, and that might even be just as children, how we behave with other children, each of us impacts a child in some kind of way. So 
if, if people have children, most of those parents come in interested in figuring out how to be better parents. Sometimes they're simply working on how to be their better selves. And then because they are their better selves, then they are naturally better parents, parents. right? Mm -hmm. But some of us are aunties and uncles. Some of us are big brothers and sisters. Some of us are godparents. So there's a, there's a wide variety of ways to have direct impact on children. But people don't come in saying, you know what? I have this thing going on and I feel like it's making it so that I'm not showing up as the best godparent for my child. That's not how it works. But everybody shows up interested in trying to do or be better in some capacity with themselves. And again, once you get right with you, and I don't mean a one-time thing, right? But you you are consciously about examining your stuff, examining how you show up in the world and why, tapping into where your stuff even starts from. Some of it is directly in your family, but even your family stuff goes back to some other things. Again, if we're talking about um, systemic, systemic racism, white supremacy, et cetera, right? All the things that go along with that. There's a long, there's a long, long twisted history that impacts today yeah. in the way we show up today, right? So helping people to develop a deeper understanding of what ails them, helping them to develop a deeper understanding of what are they actually feeling interested in doing. Some of my clients, are very clear. I just come here to vent. I don't want to do anything else. Right. Hmm. And so they are not the ones who you're specifically doing the work for. They're typically also ones who are very clear. They, I don't really want to do the, the kid thing, right? Not directly. However, they feel themselves showing up in the world doesn't feel suited for, for parenthood, which is also beneficial knowing whether or not that's something you can do. Oh, it is. It's an amazing thing. Uh, exactly. That is, that is self-liberating in, its, in itself. And it's, it's self-reflective and it's knowing like, mm -hmm. if you know, like I, I often, I see people, I'm like, some people just shouldn't be parents. They just shouldn't be parents, but they <laughs> didn't have the wherewithal to say that to themselves. Like I could look back and say, yeah, I, I knew. <laughs> Well, so some of that is even understanding that you have choices. A lot of us don't recognize we have choices. So much of the way that this society moves hands down scripts to you as the way you're supposed to live. Yeah. So you follow this course, you gotta, you gotta go K-12. And then once you finish with that, a lot of people are not even considering whether they belong in college. You go straight to college or you get a job. What is the part? What is the purpose of all of this? Right? Are you working? Because because when you when you go off to college and now you're supposed to pursue something that you're passionate about, your work is about your passion. Should you not have passions if you don't go to college? How do you tap into those things? Because then the expectation is you just gotta be doing something contributing positive positively to society and out the way. We need to make sure you out the way. So. You follow the script. If you don't do the college route, the script says you're not going to be nobody. Most likely. Mm -hmm. Right. Which guarantees that everybody, for the most part, stays on the script for college. So you go get your education. 
Um, if you're lucky, and that's in quotes, if you're lucky, you find a partner, you you marry, you start on your on your pathway to having children and building a career, and uh, you just keep getting raises and promotions un- until retirement. But that's not actually how life works out. That's not how any of this is even set up. Right. But the script says that's what you're supposed to do. So you don't even really stop to take the time to think about what you're interested in. Do I really truly feel like I want to be married? Do I want to be in a monogamous relationship? Do I want to be in a whatever, right? And you could want these things. When's the last time somebody told you or had a discussion around you about the possibility that maybe you don't get married in your 20s, maybe not even in your 30s, and maybe not even in your 40s, but it's still possible because you're alive and so are other people. But you're supposed to see yourself as having something wrong with you if you Mm -hmm. didn't do it according to the script, right? Right. So these scripts got us messed up out here (laughs) because it, it says we're all supposed to do the exact same thing. Nothing of whether where you live there are viable partners nothing of whether where you live there are upward upwardly mobile jobs nothing of what your your bank account is looking like and how much it costs to to raise people so that's one aspect of it the other aspect of it is while you're doing all the things to survive people want connection people are seeking self-soothing and sex is a way that all of us have sought out at some point or another to be able to fulfill those things. And sometimes you do it consciously and sometimes you don't. And mm. when you're not doing it consciously, you're not thinking about planned parenthood. You just doing what feels good in the moment. Right, right. now, I need to know something or someone sees me. This is the only way I got. This is what I'm going to do. Oops, now we got another baby. There's 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 so, there's so many there's so many pathways, but getting people to the point where they recognize that they have choice. Where they recognize, you know what? Once I remember that one time I had a thought that I didn't want to do fill in the blank. And yet here I am doing it because I forgot that I didn't have to do it just because everybody else was. This is how we wind up stifling ourselves. But so in the work, it's helping people to see what they think, what they feel, what they believe, and what they do. All those things are connected. And then the ways that you basically enact all of that, somebody is bearing witness to it. So if you actually have children in your home and you are not moving in a way that is highly anxious because you have figured out how to spot your triggers and, and kind of bring them down, you can manage that. Um, that you have tended to whatever wounds you have, issues with your mama, issues with your daddy, 
that girl that uh, broke up with you when you was nine that you never forgave and now you hate all women. Nine. All that foolishness <laughs> that shows up in the world, right? Yeah. Because these people will reach back. When you talk to them, they will tell you about some foolishness before you even had hair on your lip. And, and now every woman is paying the price for that. Right. But when you are living, getting into a place where you can live consciously and conscientiously based in an understanding of what you want, what you're interested in, and what's realistically available to you. Because we have to be honest with ourselves. You get to that point and you got children in the house that bear witness. Now they're recognizing from a nurture perspective, right? Seeing you, they're recognizing from a nature perspective what your innate capabilities are for taking care of and managing your life. They're seeing a difference. Mm -hmm. Or they come into it after you've already sort of done this work and they they don't ever have to take on the environment of anxiety in their home. They don't have to be concerned about having a mother or father who can't get up and and feed them because they're in the bed depressed for long stretches of time. They have the ability to see um, parents with emotional intelligence who are equipped to problem solve, who don't lose it at this, the first sign of, of challenge. And then now they get to move through the world as adults and become parents, aunties, uncles, grandparents, big cousins, whoever that, model the same thing because that's what they know versus mm -hmm. like one of my students whose mother was bipolar all he ever knew was that women behave in this particular erratic manner and then after they finish you know harming you based based in the ways that they they've spiraled in this space then they come back and they're very loving and so so now this is how you know to receive attention i've witnessed that happen this child then wondered if if he was bipolar no, but then he also recognized he was attracted to girls who behaved in the way that his mom did and the way his mom behaved hurt him tremendously. Right. And he was repeating that in his relationships. And so he essentially stayed hurt in all his environment. Mm -hmm. Carrying that on, mm -hmm. you know, holding that. Mm -hmm. yeah. But wow. had he seen something else in his household, what could have been different or possible for him? Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, it's it the the whole concept of, nature and nurture and you know being able to move through this life and and having people who are really aware of what all the stuff that they bring with them because we all bring stuff with us mm -hmm. so being aware of that and 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 working through those issues so that you don't continue to pass these heirlooms these legacies on generation after generation i yeah. think is is really really huge so i want to i want to close with something that i heard the other day and this was after we we spoke we had a, a kind of pre-discussion and i love um watching the show that comes on uh with uh, the doctor from harvard where he's finding your roots. I, I, mm -hmm. I love watching and seeing, okay, where, from whence do people come, right? Because particularly as black people, you know, I did, I did my DNA testing, but that doesn't really tell me a lot. It tells me like yeah. 
maybe <laughs> different parts of Africa that I might have come come from, but really delving deep. I wish I had all of the the funds and finances to just call them and say, "Hey, I got the money. Could you do my my tree?" But that's neither here nor there. So I was watching the show the other week, and a commercial came on Johnson and Johnson, and it said, "What?" If we told you the future of your health is written somewhere in the past, we believe knowing your family's health history can be the key to a longer, healthier life. And that was a Johnson & Johnson commercial. I don't even know what they were selling. I don't think they were necessarily selling anything. It just came up and I was like, that's really interesting, Johnson & Johnson, who's been sued for a variety of things. But that's neither here nor there because um, we've all used some Johnson & Johnson products at one point in our life. But talk a little bit about in terms of what you do in your practice, how that, how that relates. So I received the word health as a broad concept. That's physical and mental. When you go to the doctor, you have to do as much of your family history as possible. That helps them to be able to know and understand sort of what to anticipate for you, what kinds of markers to look for, what kinds of tests to run by what age etc so you know if you as a woman typically as a woman I don't know how often these conversations come up around men though they should more now but as a woman everybody wants to know if any of the women in your direct line had breast cancer Mm -hmm. so that you can then anticipate you know whether this might be of concern for you going forward the same thing is necessary in what I do. I ask people if they know any of their family mental health history. What's your mama and daddy got going on? And it might not, a lot of people will say undiagnosed, right? This is what I observed. So much of what has been, I'll say normalized, but it really just meant it was common. Doesn't mean it was normal. But so much of what has been normalized sort of in our families when we did not have the language of mental health was disregarded. So that law, that loud auntie you had that, you know, once or twice a year would cuss everybody out and throw dishes (laughs) and all and all the potentially schizophrenic. Mm. But we didn't we didn't know that. Right. Um, again, you had, you had a mama who just couldn't, couldn't get up. She was in the bed all the time. She went to work and then she sat like, I have a a girlfriend from childhood. Her mother sat on the same end of the sofa in a, in a nightgown, same position, smoking a cigarette and drinking every night of the week after work. That woman was grieving the loss of her husband. Was that discussed openly in their household? No. She was alone in the world. She had family, but the the love of her life was gone. This This man was gone, right? When did you ever hear about grieving beyond the funeral that's what you did at the funeral and then you put that away 
Right. And that's, and that's what's expected. Right. right. That just get over it. Right. So mm-hmm. when you hear that, where are you supposed to put all that at? That stuff lives inside of you. So if we talk about um, epigenetics, mm-hmm. the DNA imprint, we pass this on. We pass these things on. If you look at <clears throat> um, post-traumatic, they still call it PTSD, so uh, slave disorder, but I I can't call slavery a disorder. Like, <laughs> that's their problem, right? Whatever their stuff was that even decided to put people in bondage, that's their issue. It's not my disorder. But the impact, the imprint of that, right? That lives in our DNA. These are things that we continue to pass on. And so over time, things shift, right? Um, The ways that they show up change, but you can start to learn what to anticipate. There are studies that are being done in terms of particularly autoimmune disorders that are tracing the origins of them so that now you can basically sort of understand that where they started at was in response to this thing that we don't even have in this society anymore, but your body doesn't know how to release that from from its DNA. So you can expect potentially for that marker to show up. Now I'm really curious about sickle cell, but I have to do some research. That's neither here nor there in this moment. (laughs) But these things, these things show up imprinted on us. And then genetically, the imprint will show up again. If you think about uh, the way when we have children, you look at a child and you, she look, he or she looks like that side of the family. What else do you think you've shared with them? From it's that not side just, of the family. Right. It's not just the way people look. You're you're sharing um, your genetic makeup. That's your blood. That's your organs, right? And then you put it in a in a specific kind of environment. If we if we look at what cancer is, everybody has cancerous cells in their system. It's a matter of what you put in your body that activates them. So that's the nurture in your nature right mm-hmm. not everybody's going to get cancer but some of us are going to have cancer based on what it is that we have put in our bodies unknowingly because we also don't understand these disorders and diseases but put in our body unknowingly that now has become the perfect storm you have fed these cells that come with you and your particular family line has more of these cells than than somebody else's family line based yeah. in your epigenetics or your your genetic makeup, right? And so having an understanding that when we talk about health, health is full spectrum. The mind and the body work together in concert. If one is sick, the other will soon follow in some way. If you don't feel well in your body, do you feel like wanting to do anything? You're demotivated. You have no interest in things. When you don't feel good in your in your mind, when your emotions are unwell, your body lays down and then you become stagnant and stiff, right? One follows the other. So when we're talking about um, the future of your health, knowing what your people come with, and that's not just to be able to sit with your primary care physician, you need to know 
when they say your grandmother had uh, three nervous breakdowns. Well, I'm still not clear specifically what mental health challenge the nervous breakdown is, but it's some type of it's right. I don't know Mm -hmm. which specific one we attach it to from a diagnostic perspective, but something wasn't right. Something was not right. And as part of that genetic line, something show up as not right with you too. You shouldn't be surprised. We need to know what we have going on with us so that we can also do a better job to the degree possible. Because again, we're talking environmental stuff that we can't even control. I can't control whether or not, you know, the state has has murdered somebody else in my in my community. I can't control that. But what I can control is if I know and recognize that there are a variety of um autoimmune disorders in my in my family line that potentially if I show up with high stress responses and I'm releasing great amounts of cortisol into my body I'm creating the space for disorder to show up disorder disorder and disease when you break down the word disease or disease it's dis-ease you are not you are not at ease within your your um, physical system. Mm-hmm. So then I have to be mindful of my own stressors, how I respond to stressful situations. I have to put practices in place to ensure that I have peace available for me, that I know how to deescalate myself, that I know how to tend to my anxiety, that I know how to stop spiraling, that I know how to address wild thoughts that show up, right? These are things that I have to do because if I don't, I'm creating the atmosphere for dis-ease in my body to create disease in my body. So we we have to have a much more comprehensive understanding of the full spectrum of our health and our health markers so that we can do what we can in order to improve our health indices. If you know you got um, a history of arthritis in your family, do people know that they should maybe cut down on their salt intake? Most mm-hmm. of us don't know these things, but you have, you have to start, start being a more conscientious um, inhabitant of your mind and body. And the way that you can do that with the information, you take the information and then you use it to investigate so that you can figure out how to take better care of yourself in all the ways possible. Right. Right. Well, that's a really, really comprehensive way (laughs) to look at it and an excellent way for us to end talking about mind, body, spirit, and and knowing, and, and knowing from whence we came basically to the extent that we can know from whence we came so thank you for that very much so I want to thank you this has been an amazing discussion uh I see where your brilliance has come from being you know (laughs) nurtured in the (laughs) in an afrocentric school and I I want to thank you so so much and may 
health continue now <laughs> your your mm. path and doing all mm. you that you can for for the community because we need it we need thank it thank you thank, thank you, you. Thank you for listening to the Heirloom and Legacy podcast. For more information about end-of-life planning, please visit us at LegacyPreservation.life. You can also find us on Instagram at Legacy Preservation. Many thanks to my exceptional executive assistant, Queen Karen Garrison, also known as Mommy Activist. Please note that these discussions are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as legal advice on any subject matter. You should not act or refrain from acting based on any content included in this discussion without seeking legal or other professional advice. Thank you again for choosing Heirloom and Legacy Podcast. Please like, subscribe, and tell your friends about us.